0: Joining me today is Susan Howard, the Director of Federal ICS Cybersecurity at Jacobs, Eric Conway, the Technical Director of Cybersecurity at Jacobs, and Dean Hollings, Global Defense Solutions Strategist at Forescap. So, thank you all for joining me today. Uh, we've got a great list of questions to go through. We're gonna start with Eric, and this first question is around the differences uh, between informational technology systems and operational technology systems. And so, Eric, what I'd like to ask you is, can you describe some of the differences in cybersecurity between IT systems and OT systems, and what can be learned from the IT world that could be shared with the OT world about securing these environments?
1: Okay, Thank you, Paul. Well, one of the biggest difference we see with um, operational technology or OT systems and IT security is based on the fact that operational technology integrates the cyber, the human, and the physical elements of security, uh, unlike IT security. Um, With traditional IT security, um, we're usually focused on protecting assets related to the operations of a business or an organization. We're trying to protect customers' data or business data or privacy information, all of which are very important. And in traditional IT security, we usually follow uh, what's sometimes called the CIA triad, uh, confidentiality, integrity, and availability of the system.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. Uh, We kind of flip that with OT security. We move to a different prioritization where availability of an OT system tends to take the priority, uh, followed by integrity and confidentiality. Uh, and this is partly because um, availability of an operational technology-based system can really uh, have an impact on human life, especially if there's a breach. You can imagine the availability of water or the integrity of a safety system in a manufacturing plant or a military base. Um, secondly. Um, operational technology systems have not really enjoyed the same level of technical evolution as the IT world has in the past couple of decades, especially with respect to cybersecurity. Mm-hmm. Lots of operating systems um, or operational technologies are older. Mm-hmm. They were designed to be autonomous, they were designed to function in a peer to peer infrastructure.
2: Mm-hmm. And
1: not designed with typical networking stacks, uh, typical operating system features, and all the interfaces that we have in the IT world. Uh, So the way that you secure these networks can be fundamentally different. That said, there are a lot of lessons we apply from IT security, Uh, one being approaching security from a risk-based assessment. Um, You know, know what your assets are on the network, Uh, understand the impacts of a breach and where your highest priorities should fall. Uh, Where are your most critical systems? And um, having good self-assessment processes in where you're continually assessing your risk. Mm -hmm. Second thing we can always apply from IT side of things is recognize that the human element is critical. Uh, It is the leading cause of cyber risk, whether you're talking IT security or OT security. Mm-hmm. You can't ignore things like basic hygiene, basic cyber hygiene. The CyberX study this year found in operating, uh, operating operational technology systems, mm-hmm. things like outdated operating systems, unencrypted passwords, um, lack of automated updates, and in, in a large case, direct connections to the internet were making operational technology very soft targets for cyber adversarial attacks. Hmm.
0: Okay. And then, Dean, kind of turning to you uh, and and thinking about uh, distribution systems, Uh, you know, as distribution systems like Amazon, FedEx, and the Defense Logistics Agency become more mechanized and networked, uh, what are the risks there? And how do you secure systems that inherently need to be connected? And what impacts do outages or attacks have on a distribution system?
3: Yeah, that's Those examples, uh, Paul, are, are are really classic OT environments, um, and you know just to kind of build on on what Eric had mentioned. I, I like the way he put that we've kind of flipped the the model of how we secure these devices. Um, you know, from traditional IT environments, um, you know, you look at a production line of of Amazon, uh, they're filling orders. There's a lot of sensors uh, that are connected into either a centralized server or maybe multiple servers. Uh, same thing with a FedEx package uh, shipping plant or with, with all the sensors that are looking at where the package is going, maybe taking weights of the package, maybe, maybe some drug sniffing type uh, sensors or, or in this day and age, bomb, bomb material sniffing type sensors. So all of these sensors now uh, become critical to the operation of of what we're talking about. E- either Amazon trying to fill customer orders or FedEx trying to move packages to where they need to get to. Um, so it only takes one of these sensors to, to get compromised or to get corrupted or really operationally to say no. And, and now you've shut down the entire line, right? Um, You know, it it uh, the dependency on on these is is critical to to those those operations. So anytime uh, the line gets shut down, Mm -hmm. now you're impacting the bottom line, and that's that's money to those organizations. Um, Defense Logistics Agency. It's it's the end state is a is a little bit different because now you could be processing materials or or personnel, or medical records, uh, even that are affecting a, a unit's readiness. And you know they could be getting ready to go down range to do uh, important operations. And if, if that logistics process gets shut down, now they can't get to where they need to be, or they don't have the supplies once they get there. And then of course there's military operations and, and individual, Sailors, soldiers, airmen, marines—you know—lives at risk. So, um, so outages are are impactful in in different ways, but equally important to those organizations.
0: Now, how do you, uh, as part of that, now how do you secure systems? How do you that that need to be connected? And you know, what did, what would be some uh, some solutions in that way?
3: Yeah, Eric touched on it. Was you know you can't. Think of them in the same ways that you think of IT devices um, they're very often stripped down uh, operating systems with very very minimal memory and, and compute resources mm-hmm. so you have to treat them differently than you would a desktop or a laptop in that that trying to interrogate them or doing scans or something that takes away resources from that device
0: mm-hmm.
3: um, it could cause the cause the outage that you're trying to avoid. So mm-hmm. you have to treat them a little bit differently mm-hmm. and take on more passive methods of discovery and analysis of what they're doing, uh, analysis of how they're communicating with with other devices on the network and making sure that there are no anomalies there. And if there are anomalies, figure out what's going on um without impacting that that production line that that is involved gotcha i
0: gotcha now let's uh turn the discussion a little bit to the the u.s government and um you know securing industrial control systems there so uh, i'll start with you eric and then susan i'm going to bring you in on this uh you know especially with your role at jacobs and working with the federal government so eric just to start us down this path can you speak to the importance and strategy of securing industrial control systems in the U.S. government?
1: Sure. Thanks, Paul. Um, you know, we we have to recognize that our U.S. critical infrastructure is uh, completely owned and operated and run on industrial control system technologies. Um, and that a lot of these, uh, in fact, the majority of these systems are not owned by the government. They are owned by private enterprise as well. Mm -hmm. So it is very important that the government and uh, industry work together to secure this infrastructure. Um, Our adversaries are very active right now. They're gathering intelligence. Um, They're mapping our critical infrastructure. Um, They are already Uh, showing signs of being capable of disrupting our national critical functions,
2: you know, Mm. everything
1: from water, uh, power. Uh, Imagine the chaos they can cause by disrupting our healthcare system,
0: uh,
1: Mm. something like what we're experiencing today with COVID-19. And we have to recognize in our strategy the, the additional risks that we're facing as we continue to connect operational technology to our enterprise IT systems and to the greater internet. Mm-hmm. This is expanding the cyber uh, attack surface. It's increasing security events that are happening within our critical infrastructure. Um, you know, This increased access also gives our adversaries increased access to these critical systems. Mm-hmm. Um, and it also has the... Uh, of reducing the segmentation of our networks. you know, We no longer have these standalone control networks that are physically air-gapped or separated from the greater internet. Uh, so now these systems are uh, much more susceptible to things like ransomware and malware mm-hmm. attacks that traditionally have really only affected IT security. Uh, there's a number of published uh, examples, for example, where Uh, water utilities have been taken offline because of ransomware attacks. Um, So we're seeing this um, across the board. Part of our strategy also has to focus on our supply chain. The supply chain risk management must be addressed, because the suppliers of all of these controllers and devices need to make sure that they're developed in a way that is secure. Uh, And finally, I'll mention that there are a lot of compliance standards that are being developed by the federal government Mm -hmm. uh, that are being put into place to try to address things like supply chain risk management and uh, industrial control system security. So that is a critical part of our our strategy to secure our ICS-controlled systems. Hmm. Yeah.
0: You know, and listening to you, it reminded me of a, a story I'd read, I think, last year um, it was, I, I think, some bad actors had hacked. It was a small construction company in Oregon. And mm-hmm. that was the door by which they were then able to, I think, end up compromising half of the US power grid, which, you know, is just kind of amazing. So, um, and, and Susan, you know, we had talked earlier this year uh, on cybersecurity and had uh, touched upon, I think, supply chain, and you had mentioned about you know, uh, working with partners and, and, you know, making sure that you're kind of mindful of the risks that you you bring on, um, you know, when you're working with third parties. So I I feel like that was, you know, very germaine to this discussion on on supply on supply chains but you know turning to kind of thinking about the department of defense in this context of ics are there impediments in the department of defense policy that should be reevaluated to help accelerate progress in cybersecurity defense
2: Uh, We were all really grateful uh, in 2016 when the Department of Defense released their first set of criteria to protect industrial control systems as long overdue, was about 10 years in the making and um, it came out and it was very well written and uh, there's guide specifications uh, that go along with this criteria. Mm -hmm. Uh, But um, first and foremost, cybersecurity, uh, Is an ever-evolving technology uh, spectrum. And so I was talking to my mechanical and uh, electrical discipline uh, colleagues the other day, and they said their specs haven't changed in about 10 years. Um, So in cybersecurity, 10 years is a lifetime. Uh, We need to find a uh, more efficient way of upgrading these specs uh, to keep up with technology. That's one thing we've learned in the past couple of years as we've been going through uh, these guide specs that the DOD has written. Uh, Another thing we've learned is that um, there's no uh, language or process uh, defining validation and commissioning. So our contractors get out to the site and they do what they're asked to do, but they don't know when they're done. Um, So the Navy has come out with a new commissioning spec that'll help the cybersecurity practitioners uh, Mm. understand this and the Army and uh, Air Force are soon to follow. Um, The other thing um, that is an impediment is what we call control lists. And these are based on Nest 800 series uh, controls. In Nest 882 for industrial control system, there's about 17 control families. Mm -hmm. Well, Department of Defense has taken that um, and turned it into about 300 pages of controls. So if you can imagine, I'm a contractor out on the job site and I've got a checklist that's 300 pages long. I'm going to perform a box checking exercise And this is uh, very uh, not, I guess, conducive to creating a secure environment. We don't want box checking exercises. We want secure environments uh, when they leave the site. So so this has been realized and there are some efforts underway to improve the guide specs and improve the uh, criteria that was written. Um, And it was great when it came out uh, four years ago and it needs to be a continuous iterative process.
0: Okay, and then as a follow-up, you know, a couple of terms that were I was introduced to you know, as we were preparing to uh, have this discussion, uh, is uh, the 802.1x and then network access control. Now, can you explain what those are and how are they different and why is this significant in the industrial control? Uh, Systems environment?
2: Yeah, so I'll start first with defining the problem a little bit. Um, And I just talked about how the specs haven't kept up with technology and industrial control system. And so the basic problem here is that we're trying to fit the square peg that is industrial control system Mm -hmm. into the round hole that is IT. 8021 x is an IEEE standard. It's been out for a long time, and it works great in the IT enterprise environment, especially for wireless. It's how your uh, your iPad, your uh, laptop, your phone can uh, authenticate to a wireless environment, right? Mm-hmm. We tried to do uh, 8021 x wired in the IT enterprise for many years. Some have succeeded, but uh, just as many have failed because of a lot of things, Um, but for industrial control systems, we cannot force 8021X into that environment, which is how the specifications are written now on the DoD side at least. Um, And there's a couple of good reasons for that. Um, There's a few things that 8021X needs in order to work. Uh, One of them is called a supplicant, right? A supplicant is something that the client has that they use to authenticate. So. Imagine in the, in the Internet of Things or IIoT, a refrigerator, right? A refrigerator doesn't have a supplicant. Um, so how is it gonna authenticate? Um, it can, via 802.1x, it cannot. Uh, Same with a lighting sensor, or um, I was just working on electric meters yesterday. They don't have supplicants either. Mm -hmm. Uh, The other thing is a PKI environment. Uh, The industrial control system world doesn't typically connect to a PKI, public key infrastructure environment, like IT does. The certificates are not, uh, you know, gained by a certificate authority because a lot of the DoD systems are intentionally not connected to the internet, so this doesn't is not the default. Um, so that's the so the certificate, the supplicant, and then a management console is needed to make 802.1x work. Um, again, your refrigerator isn't connected to a management console. Mm-hmm. Your electric meter isn't uh, connected to an authentication management console. Um, so this is why 802.1x just doesn't work in industrial control systems. Um, Network access control is uh, related to 802.1X, but instead of trying to make make, make it a one-size-fits-all that something that works in IT has to work in ICS, mm-hmm. network access control or, uh, you know, ZTNA, I guess it's called, Zero Trust Network Access, um, it's a, not a one-size-fits-all solution. You don't have to follow 8021 x and vendors like Orscout um, have been very uh, successful in developing solutions that work in water uh, treatment plants or wastewater or electric. Um, so, so the we need to call it a day with 8021 x and stop throwing good money after bad. It's not gonna work in industrial control system. Uh, major vendors already realize that. We need to take it out of the specs.
0: Okay. And then so so Dean Susan had mentioned For Scout and uh you know For scout's uh, you know, uh, abilities in the industrial control system environment. Can you, you know, tell us a little bit about the product strategy of Four Scout and how it's positioned to help organizations with ICS cybersecurity?
3: Yeah, I, I sure can. And uh, you know, Susan shaped it very, very well. Um, we've got a tremendous amount of uh, industrial control systems now and all of the sensors we talked about earlier
0: mm-hmm.
3: that are being connected now through what were and remain traditionally IT networks. And so trying to af- apply the same security rules that we've all grown up with in the IT space to these OT environments or the industrial control system environments is, is just not not going to work. And the one that was pointed out is the dot one X requirement mm-hmm. um, as Susan said it, it, it there, there are devices out there that that are connected that just cannot take a uh, a traditional dot one X supplicant uh, an agent on the uh, endpoint to to report back to a server for authentication so so scouts approach is is to be able to passively and actively, in some cases, discover and uh, characterize every device that's connecting to the network. And what that does for us then is we can then segment your networks to put the OT environment devices in an OT environment and your IT environment uh, devices in an IT environment. And then you can wrap your security policies around them differently. Mm -hmm. Same network, Same management console, Mm -hmm. uh, same real policy sets, but they're applied differently given the different environments uh, that you're trying to protect and you're trying to secure. Mm -hmm. So we're cutting down, we're we're reducing risk across the entire network, across the enterprise. Mm -hmm. We're reducing costs for administrators that they're learning one tool that can control these different environments, the security of the different environments. And we're also taking into account, you know, the different tools that are already out there for the management consoles in, in the different disparate environments and connecting those together to pull all of that pertinent information um, into a centralized uh, policy set. So you can, you can treat tools, we, you can treat those endpoints differently and accordingly, according to your security policies.
0: Okay. And then, Eric, I want to uh, talk a little bit about smart city environments and the Internet of Things uh, deployments there. And, um now I was looking, the International Data Corporation has some stats and, and one of which that caught my eye. It said by 2023, so just about three years from now, 20% of cybersecurity incidents will stem from smart city IoT deploy, device deployments. Uh, forcing double digit increases in cybersecurity software and staff training budgets. So, can you describe for our audience some of the more prevalent cyber threats we're seeing that face non traditional IoT, such as building systems and smart cities? And then, what are some of the steps that Jacobs is taking to help clients mitigate those risks?
1: Sure, Paul. Thank you. So, I think um, the The types of cyber threats that we're seeing with non-traditional IoT are largely result of uh, an increased amount of connectivity of devices on our networks, Mm -hmm. Uh, an increased amount of data and uh, data flow from those devices into our IT systems and our operational systems. Um, The kinds of threats we're seeing are similar to what we see in the Uh, in in IT security. We're seeing multi-stage attacks from our adversaries. Uh, The tactics and and techniques and procedures that our adversaries follow are very similar in that they often start with a very simple attack. It may be something um, that takes advantage of poor user cyber hygiene. Mm -hmm. An employee in the city who clicks on a link in their email, that link downloads some software to their computer that is able to gain access to that system. Uh, they can then be used to elevate privilege to gain access into that network. Mm-hmm. And there, adversaries can pivot to other parts of the network. Uh, once you're in the network, you tend to be in a trusted zone and you can take advantage of that trust and you can continue to uh, percolate your way through the network, mapping the network, um, gaining access to additional resources. Mm-hmm. And- closer and closer and closer to your critical resources. So uh, we're seeing these kinds of uh, attacks already under play, underway. And um, they all take advantage of the user error, the increase of connectivity, outdated infrastructure. Uh, so what kinds of things are we doing? Well, uh, what Jacobs is doing is we're partnering with companies like Scout that bring um, products to the market that can do Uh, intelligent asset management, uh, anomaly detection, Uh, we can use these tools to build managed security services that integrate security functions, they allow us to analyze network traffic, Uh, they uh, allow us to implement things like user and endpoint level protection and anomaly detection. Uh, Another area that Jacobs is working is helping customers uh, and clients implement zero trust solutions. When I mentioned that kind of common tactic of getting into a network, <clears throat> excuse me, and then pivoting into other sections of the network, you take advantage of the trust models, the zero trust solution or the zero trust architecture uh, disables that by essentially wrapping all of your critical assets in a, uh, a zero trust paradigm where you have to constantly uh, authenticate with your your system before you can gain access to any critical piece of data or system or software. We're also finding uh, constant assessment is uh, a a very, very uh, strong way of mitigating risk. It's not enough to just institute a bunch of security controls, but you have to continually assess your security posture. Things change adversaries' techniques change, systems become outdated. So you have to have a continual uh, approach in assessing and using tools like uh, For Scout um, allow you to have that constant body of evidence that proves and demonstrates whether you're secure and if you're not, where you may have those vulnerabilities. And a third area that I'll mention that Jacobs is particularly well-suited in is training workforce development. Yeah. All of these require people who have uh, strong qualifications and understanding of network security, computer security, physical security, uh, operational security. Uh, And Jacobs works very hard to uh, train and develop the next generation cyber workforce to make sure we have the people that can do these jobs. Mm, Excellent. Excellent.
0: Yeah. And I think, I think human talent is going to be key both in like how we address it, but then also raising awareness, you know, social engineering and just kind of greater uh, cyber cyber hygiene, as you've been saying, you know, among among an organization. So Dean, uh, kind of pivoting a little bit on this, you know, we're, we're talking about, you know, smart cities. We're talking about an environment that's rich with devices that are trading all kinds of information, you know, uh, sensors and, and whatnot. But let's you know, we're talking about attacks and the attacks in the city environment, but what about military installations? You know, particularly that it might be embedded or networked into these communities. How is the impact different there for military information or installations compared to say a civilian community?
3: Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Paul. That I mean smart cities are 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 the way of the future, right? But just think about that for a second. Can you picture in a city every single traffic light turning red at the same time, or every single traffic light turning green at the same time? I, I mean, it, it it's astounding to me. Um, so you know what Eric had talked about with with getting people trained and understanding the impacts and the the details of all of this is is going to be critical and. I start out that way because our bases are not standalone bases anymore. Um, maybe back when I started in the, in the Air Force in the, well, a while ago, um, maybe, maybe we had a whole lot more standalone capabilities on our bases. Mm-hmm. Uh, but today we're really, in the DOD installations are becoming more and more integrated into the communities around them. They get power generation, power distribution, water, um, the, the the fuel uh, tank farms that, that house the fuel for the vehicles or the aircraft on a flight line, uh, you know, these are traditionally off base. And so getting the pipelines to feed the fuel and the sensors that monitor the fuel pressure on those lines or that power that we were talking about, the distribution to get power onto the base, all of that's dependent on what is happening in the environment around them in the community around them Mm -hmm. and so again back to what we talked about earlier the the difference is um when when you're talking about the community yes there's a lot of businesses that are going to get impacted. maybe some government local government um uh, services that are going to get impacted maybe some inconvenience because a a commuter commuter function, be it those traffic lights or a train, uh, metro train here in the D.C. area, Uh, maybe those are impacted and it impacts the community, the the people themselves. But again, on a military installation, now you're talking about military operations. You're talking about the readiness of the forces uh, being degraded um potentially being being turned off and going to a red status mm-hmm. because of an impact to something as as simple as again back to Eric's point someone penetrated a camera on the corner of a uh of an intersection in the middle of the city and used that access now to get to where they really wanted to get to moving laterally across the network mm-hmm. and causing a, a much bigger disruption than than that that specific camera. So I you know I think I think the way that we mitigate these impacts is going to rely on technology, right? Talk, talking about the technology of seeing everything and being able to segment those everything's into different bite-sized pieces that you can then wrap your security policy around them. But it's also going to take back to the human capital. It's going to take partnerships. That you know, fighting the cyber fight is, is not a one group or 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 even one base uh, type of of an effort. It takes a community effort, both on the base and off the base. In these in these uh, in the scenario that you brought up, and collaboration to understand how do we share information, how do we make sure that that the the uh, response actions that we're taking in the military installation are not impacting adversely what's happening off base uh, in the community, and vice versa. So I, I think there's a couple pieces here, and I'm really glad that Eric brought up the you know Jacob's model of training the future workforce because that's going to be critical, having the right people with the right knowledge and the right uh, expertise to To be able to work through these diverse environments.
0: Interesting. Now, you had mentioned you'd mentioned power and water and some of the utilities, of course, that are you know, military installations increasingly are no longer islands, but they are part of a larger ecosystem. Uh, and so, what might new cyber requirements for, like, say, the commercial power grid, for instance, mean for U.S. military energy systems?
3: Yeah so so it's interesting that um you know Susan brought up earlier the the 300 page document that that uh, becomes a checklist of as long as I do all these checks you know I'm secure right, right. um and and what I'll bring up is that there has been recent uh, legislation and recent efforts uh, I think Eric alluded to them earlier you know, specifically uh, uh, efforts coming out of the Department of Energy, um, uh, efforts coming out of the uh, the the Federal Energy Regulation Commission. And what we're seeing is a lack of tr- trust that the guidelines that are coming out uh, are really being followed to to what they need to be to raise raise the tide, so to speak of all cybersecurity across this, this, this tremendous connected environment that, that we all find ourselves in today. Um, So whether, whether it's, whether it's, you know, uh, the Department of Homeland Security or the Department of Energy putting out guidelines that say you shall follow NIST, you know, principles, 800 series principles, uh, 82 that, 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 uh, Susan brought up or or basic IT principles 800-171 to secure your networks but then that follow-on activity to ensure that those are being followed on a continuous process to Eric's point and 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 then the curiosity you know with from my standpoint is it hasn't been really clearly defined how these new regulations and these new guidelines and these these uh, new directives that are coming out for um, you know, the, the energy world, how are they gonna get applied to uh, yet another thing on that 300 page checklist that our DOD um, designers and operators are gonna have to pay attention to? And, and that's not really clear to us yet and certainly something that, that we're gonna be watching very closely. Really, probably with partners like uh, like Jacobs to see how we can help make a positive impact on those DOD users.
0: Well, and on that on that point about how the requirements are changing and evolving, you know, Eric, I've got to assume that you know the government cybersecurity policy is continuously evolving or trying to anyway to stay current with changes cyber threats, right? The bad guys aren't resting, and so the good guys can't rest either, you know. Who are the key players in this evolution, and what are the key attributes that make the new cybersecurity policy or policies different than from the past?
1: Yeah, I I think Dean really did hit on a lot of the key players, and and Susan mentioned uh, some of the NIST standards as well. Mm -hmm. Um, So from the government point of view, some of the key players would be the National Institute of Standard and Technology, which we have NIST, and a series of controls <clears throat> called the NIST 800 series. Um, these are security controls that are defined for uh, federal systems, for organizations, as well as for contractors and supply chain contractors that provide services to the federal government. Mm-hmm. There's a wealth of material out there. There's lots of checklists. There's lots of security standards that if they're followed properly, uh, I think you'd find that our clients, our networks and our critical infrastructure would be fairly well protected. Um, There are also organizations, uh, Dean mentioned uh, DHS, Department of Homeland Security, you know, the Cybersecurity Infrastructure and Security Agency or CISA, Um, puts out a lot of guidance these days that it's very useful for for organizations looking to secure their networks. Department of Energy's done the same. It all kind of feels a bit fractured still. Mm -hmm. And so there's another element to that. There's other key players. I think that uh, the manufacturers of equipment, in particular operational technology, the the Siemens, the Honeywells, uh, those kinds of uh, manufacturers have a role to play in producing controllers and uh, PLCs and SCADA equipment that is more resilient to attack. Mm-hmm. The IOT devices that are coming out in, in large numbers uh, should be developed in a way that they are secure. Uh, so they have, a, they're, they have a key role to play there. Uh, and then as Dean mentioned, partnerships between companies that specialize in cybersecurity, mm-hmm like Jacobs that have a broad reach across the federal government, across the uh, uh, Department of Defense, throughout the intelligence community, as well as the commercial sector, uh, partnering with companies like Four Scouts and some of the cloud service providers and network service providers um, so that we can implement those security controls in a way that's something beyond just simple checkbox compliance. I think... Checkbox compliance is kind of, uh, it's recognized now that it's not enough, that we really have to have active security. Um, And these policies are different now. You know, we we recognize that IOT, uh, IT, and operational technology, this convergence, it's ubiquitous. Uh, Air gap solutions are really not viable anymore. Uh, We know with the remote workforce that there's an increased need for connectivity Uh, So the policies that are being defined have to recognize that this connectivity is here to stay uh, and that it does pose an increased risk uh, and that it has to be addressed in any policy. Uh, We have to recognize that our critical infrastructure is largely owned and operated by the private sector. Uh, So managing this risk really becomes a shared responsibility between the industry uh, and government. And we have to recognize that our supply chain is a critical component to any uh, way of securing our systems. Uh, we have to implement supply chain risk management policies into our security planning for our national infrastructure.
0: Okay. And, uh, you know, t- Susan, turning back to you, uh, you know, we've talked about supply chain and about, you know, partners and... Uh, you know, a term that had, had been introduced to me recently was CMMC, which I believe stands for Cybersecurity Maturity Model Certification. And it made me recall a, a podcast we had done uh, a while back where you spoke about organizational maturity related to cybersecurity. And uh, you describe what CMMC is and why it's important for organizations to achieve that certification.
2: Yeah, it's great that um, Eric is uh, emphasizing supply chain because that's what CMMC is about—supply uh, chain, supply chain, supply chain—and how to uh, ensure that your defense contractors, who are the supply chain for DoD, are protecting controlled unclassified information. Um, in the, the technically speaking, CMMC, you know, is incorporates DFARS 252, 204. 7012, and the, another NIST uh, specification 800-171 for unclassified uh, controlled information. Um, the real goal is to prevent data breaches where the defense contractor is the weakest link in the chain. Um, and it's a really uh, a natural evolution of digital transformation where we now realize that um, all of our... Uh, sensitive information exists in the digital realm and not uh, on hard copy where we can just head to a shredder and shred it. Mm -hmm. So it it is part of the digital transformation, the CMMC, um, but it's also part of the supply chain uh, acknowledgement that supply chain is uh, high risk and so I think the most recent example in the past several de- decades is the Edward Snowden example, right, where a defense contractor was able to do so much damage. Um, and we want to prevent things like that from happening uh, to the furthest extent possible. So
1: so right now, everybody is
2: rushing to the finish line to be ready for CMMC. Mm-hmm. And right now, there is no official accreditation body for CMMC. But There is tons of self-assessment software out there, uh, ranging from a couple hundred bucks to a couple thousand bucks that anyone can purchase and do a self-assessment. A lot of these are happening at the small to medium business range for defense contractors. And then large contractors like ourselves and, um, you know, the Northrop Grumman's and the AECOMS and all the A&E environment, um, we are... uh, preparing daily for uh, CMMC uh, accreditation, and uh, we've done a lot of self-assessments. And the way it's gonna roll out is that there's gonna be like a five-level certification process. So most people will probably land somewhere in the middle, like a level three, where we can say we have good cyber hygiene. And towards the end of fiscal year 21, we're told by DOD, um, all of our contracts, our federal contracts, are going to require CMMC certification. And you're going to have to say, okay, we meet level three or level four or whatever. If you can't do that, your uh, days as a defense contractor are numbered. So, of course, there's a lot of money on the line here, mm-hmm. um, which is a good thing because this uh, forces accountability on uh, the supply chain. And so it, it's a very good uh, and natural evolution of the. Um, cybersecurity, tra- digital and digital transformation.
0: Mm, excellent, excellent. And then, um, you know, I was, uh, had come across something from the FIDO or FIDO Alliance, um, said that passwords are the root of over 80% of data breaches. Uh, now, I understand there's some work being done to transform the processing and handling of passwords and authentication. Uh, can you tell us what is on the horizon in terms of password authentication that may impact risk mitigation, uh, user experience, and how organizations handle passwords?
2: Yeah, so right now the FIDO and FIDO2 uh, standards, they apply to uh, primarily internet web access, but um, there's some promising um, use cases to bring these into the enterprise IT world and maybe even the industrial control system world for some, uh, HMI's and, uh, historians and things like that. But once again, this is a natural evolutionary step in, in digital transformation because passwords are definitely a thing of the past. They're so nineties now. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, They're clumsy. They're hard to remember. People put them on yellow stickies and put them on their screens, you know. Um, There are lots of password vaults that can be downloaded, but um, the human error, the human factor is the problem with passwords. So uh, the FIDO Alliance got together uh, probably about eight years ago or so to come up with a solution um, so that they could use something called public key cryptography, which has been around since the 70s, really, um, but use it in a different way so that now when Experian or Adobe or Evite, uh, when they get breached, mm-hmm. they don't have my credentials anymore. right? When I managed a uh, campus university once, somebody stole the password file out of the Etsy directory in our Linux. It was a long time ago, but um, we don't want that to happen anymore. We don't want your stuff your credentials to be uh, on site at uh, Experian or Yahoo. We want you to hold your authentication, right? And that's what FIDO allows us to do. Uh, The private key you own and it stays on your device. It stays with your device. Mm -hmm. And um, the biggest use case I think that everybody knows about is when Google started using these things called keys, right? Uh, Which is a FIDO technology um, and, Around 2009, uh, all of the Google uh, employees were using these keys to help um, mitigate the risk for passwords. So it can be done in the enterprise IT, and it will be done more and more. Um, We're pretty excited um, in the cyber world about that. And I just always tell people to go look at have I been pwned site because um, a lot of cyber people have meetup groups that do... uh, Poning hacks, right? And so, poning came out of the gaming world, but there's this site called Have I Been Pwned? And so, all these huge data breaches, if you want to know if you were affected, you can go to this site. Uh, it's a well respected site, and you can type in your email address, and it'll tell you if somebody has your credentials um, because of all these breaches that have occurred. And so, those are a thing of the past, though, if uh, we roll FIDO and FIDO 2 out in a bigger way. Uh, It's already being used at Bank of America and uh, a bunch of other big players. uh, Target uh, adopted it on their website presence, Um, but it has promising uh, applications for the enterprise as well.
0: Interesting, well, I will have to check to see if I've been pwned, so that is a
2: Yes, please do.
0: Thank you. (laughs) Um, So Dean, uh, getting out your crystal ball here, uh, looking at the next five to 10 years, where do you see the future of security operations centers and tools like security incident and event managers, and intrusion prevention and detection? Where do you see all that going?
3: Yeah, uh, wow. Five to 10 years is an awful long time in cyber. Somebody mentioned it earlier, you know, 10 years is a lifetime, five years is at least a couple of generations, right? So, um, I, I had the opportunity to be on uh some NSTAC subcommittees. Um NSTAC is the National Security Telecommunications Advisory uh Committee to to the administration. Mm-hmm. And you know, we were looking at we were tasked to look at a couple different areas of cyber and cybersecurity um you know, for in the public sector in for the public good. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the key things, the key ingredients for improvement um, that always came up was the sharing of information uh, between organizations and and you know sharing not only the threats but sharing potential solutions before a problem even happens right so Really raising the level of security across the the the, the overall environment, um, and I think that our, our SOCs today are really the key areas that are making that happen. Right, sharing the information, sharing intelligence, uh, sharing solutions. What I think is going to change, and you know, five years if, if if we don't have this right in five years. Um, it, it it could be a, a very significant impact to us. But what I think is going to change is the comfort level of automated action. Um, we, we tend to want to share information between sectors, between verticals, uh, between organizations, between companies, but we don't want each other to affect each other. We want to have that human in the loop that says, I've got to be able to get this information, to analyze this information, to take uh, you know, uh, uh, appropriate actions, to make decisions, inform decisions, and then task my operators to do something about it. I, that's, I, that just took me a couple minutes and guess what? We got hacked a whole bunch of times just in that conversation right there. So I, I think the evolution of, of SOC's um you know over the next 5 to 10 years is going to be really taking the technologies that are either already available or will continue to evolve and get better and better and better but 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 putting trust in those to be able to based on poli- on policies take automated action so that that uh we can react we can quarantine we can we can control we can you know bring bring a wrapper around a problem before it spreads all across for instance uh, the medical community like mariah did or, or something along those lines mm-hmm. and so the socks already have in place the command and control for their individual organizations the socks already have in place uh, connectivity to other socks to share information, I think, will have to evolve uh, into automated action between those socks and amongst those socks to really be able to keep ahead of uh, these cyber risks that we've been talking about today.
0: Interesting, and it will be interesting to see how, like, things like artificial intelligence and machine learning are going to be deployed, you know, in this automation effort. You know, uh, I I imagine that more and more organizations are going to find, are going to want to share data sets to help, help the, you know, inform the training sets for their AIs. And so there's a certain level of trust that has to go there. And, you know, like you said, you have to mitigate the risks of, of that interconnectivity, you know, that could be an, an end for, for bad actors. And so, you know, how, how are you going to, um, how are you gonna mitigate those risks in between organizations? So, um, Eric, kinda to to wrap us up for today, I've got my last question is, is really about best practices. And what do you see are some of the best cybersecurity practices organizations, both commercial and governmental, would do well to adapt?
1: It's a very good question. And there's lots of guidance out there and some of its conflicting guidance. Um, But I think probably the most important thing is to establish a culture of security in your organization. Whether you're government, whether you're commercial, uh, you really have to integrate uh, both cyber and physical security into your operational uh, policies, your operational processes, including your leadership, uh, your daily operations. Uh, This isn't critical to addressing that human element we've talked about in cybersecurity. Um, And it also has to be integrated into all of your regular business processes. We've talked about supply chain. You you need to know your vendors can be trusted. Uh, Not only that, but you need to know that your contracts are with trusted companies. And if you have subcontractors, you have to know that they're also going to come and work with you in this kind of culture of security. So that's a very human based uh, best practice that we need to follow. Um, the, the simple idea that I've mentioned several times and I've heard uh, both uh, uh, Dean and, and everybody talk about, knowing our architecture, you know, knowing what you have, understanding what your assets are, uh, having baselines of what assets are in your organization. Uh, and again, periodically assessing and auditing uh, what your organization has and understanding the impact of change in that organization. If you're gonna swap out a system and bring in a new system, you have to be aware of the, the security implications of that. Uh, so you, you plan that security into your budgeting. Uh, you you plan it into your uh, next five years, your, uh, your future plans. Uh, and it helps to have an established security manager or leader who can, Help you sustain that direction and that momentum. Um, you know, making sure you're testing your security often, making sure that you're keeping up with um, all of these uh, procedures and, and policies that are being put into place. Um, and one other area that I'd like to mention is um, making wise investments in your security technology. Uh, last discussion about artificial intelligence is a really good example. There, there's a lot of tools out there now that claim to have artificial intelligence uh, and they often do. Uh, However, you know, we've seen also in DARPA, for example, that artificial intelligence can be spoofed. It can be tricked. Uh, Adversarial artificial intelligence is a a real tactic and we need to make sure that we're investing in technologies and we're also doing the research to make sure that these uh, products that are based on advanced technology, whether it's artificial intelligence or automation, they have to be resilient. They, they, they can't be easily spoofed or easily attacked because then that just makes us more uh, insecure or more vulnerable to attacks. Um, So those are some of the best practices that I think we can follow.
0: Excellent. Excellent advice. Well, well, Susan, Dean, and Eric, I appreciate all of you for joining me today to talk about cybersecurity. It's a, a lot, to, uh, a lot to consider, uh, both in the information technology uh, sector as well as operational technology sector, so both software and physical. Uh, it sounds like Jacobs and 4Scout are doing a lot of great things to help their clients uh, mitigate the risks and also kind of look around the corner with what might be coming next and anticipate that. So uh, thank you all for joining me and really appreciate your insights.